The Mishnah mentioned various items that are grounds for divorce. If a man does these following things, then he must divorce his wife and he has to pay a ketuvah because it's his fault for mistreating his wife in such a way. One of them is someone who makes a vow that his wife cannot go to a wedding or house of mourning. We say, we understand the wedding. That is grounds for divorce because he's locking the door in front of her. She has a perfectly good right to go and socialize and be happy in other people's weddings. So this is undue restriction. But going to a house of mourning, um, that's not uh, such an important need. Why is that also grounds for a divorce? Because eventually she will die, and then nobody will come to eulogize her, which is the famous joke that I always go to other people's funerals so that they will come to mine. We don't know who said that joke, but actually, uh, some people think Yogi Berra said it. Actually, it comes, goes back to the Talmud. It's right here. Okay. Instead of sofda with a nun, sofna, no person will value her or pay attention to her because she doesn't go and visit the sick, visit mourners. Uh, being part of society is not only sharing in people's happiness, but also uh, in their sadness. Braita supports uh, what we just said because Rimir said in this Braita, what does this Pasuk in Kohelet mean that it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of partying and happiness because this is the end of all men that they die and the living will take this to heart, take some lesson to heart when they go to a house of mourning. Uh, so what does this mean that they will take it to heart? What are, what are they going to uh, learn about? Uh, they will learn about the matters of death and realize they will die and they will take their life seriously and prioritize uh, that which is important. And furthermore, a benefit of going to a house of mourning is that when one someone goes and eulogizes others, then they will eulogize him. When someone goes and buries someone else, then the other people will bury him. When someone lifts the body and carries it to the cemetery for others, others will do it for him. Uh, when someone who escorts a body out to the cemetery, others will escort him, and uh, those, when the people carry his body out, others will also be able to carry him. Therefore, it's better to go to a house of Avel be, uh, because there, um, then that person will be taken care of as well. Uh, so this is the reason why if a man tells his wife, you can't go to a bet Avel, even though it's not a place primarily of socializing. So weddings, we understand, she wants, she's, uh, wants to be with friends and be happy. Now, house of mourning, well, that's kind of sad. Why would she want to go anyway? This is why it's really important. Uh, one learns a lot of important life lessons and is uh, then thereby 
uh, guaranteed to be taken care of after they die. But if he says, I don't want him, I don't want my wife to go to a party or house of mourning because of something else, meaning there's promiscuity there, then he is allowed to prevent her from going. Now, what is this something else? If he knows that there are promiscuous individuals that are going to take advantage and flirt with her then he says this is not a this is not a good place for you to go that's it that in, it is within his right Ravashe says that's only if he knows he's established that there are in fact uh, uh, non-trustworthy problematic people at this particular wedding or this particular house of mourning. But if he's not sure, if he just says there might be, that's not enough. He doesn't have power to uh, stop her because of that. Next thing in the Mishnah is that if he says, um, I, uh, w- you are not allowed to be with me unless you go and tell this person what you told me. Uh, now, Vetema. So why not say, what's the big deal? I mean, why is this grounds for divorce? He's making her repeat something that she said or that he said to someone else. Uh, is talking about degrading matters, shameful matters. He wants her to go repeat some lashon hara uh, or some uh, shameful act that she uh, did or said and go repeat it to the, that very person or to someone who will be affected by it. And so it's putting her into a very uncomfortable position. And so that's not right. Uh, it's a serious matter, and so he has to give her a divorce uh, if he makes a vow forcing her to do such a thing. And Mishnah said, if he if he vows and makes her a pour, uh, fill up something and pour it into the garbage. So we say, so let her do that. I mean, what's the big deal? Right? He can ask her to uh, make the beds or or um, or do the wash. So uh, why can't he ask her to do this? Take out the garbage. Uh, it's talking about that she fills herself and shakes herself out. Out. This is a way of saying some kind of contraceptive technique. Um, she's, he's forcing that she will be filled with his seed, and then she has to do some kind of shaking or or turning around to not become pregnant. And he is not allowed to do that. She has a right to have children. And so if he is demanding that she do things to prevent herself from having children, if he doesn't want, but she does want, then that is, that is grounds for divorce. Even though women are not chayavot in Peru nevertheless, she may want to have children to take care of her in old age, other reasons. Or, Another interpretation is in the Baraita that he tells her, go fill these 10 jugs of water, uh, you know, which is work. You know, have to go, go to the river, fill them up, carry them, and then pour them out on the garbage heap. In other words, just do inane nonsense work, uh, which is really very, very degrading. Okay, Bishlam al Now, uh, these two opinions, we understand Shemuel, who says, has to do with 
preventing he is preventing her from getting pregnant. That's a very serious thing. He has to give her a ketubah. But according to the other opinion, that is just uh, uh, making her fill vessels and, and empty, empty them out. So even though it's pointless work, so uh, but what does it matter? He could uh, he could ask her to do uh, work that is important. So why can't he ask her to do work that's not important? If you hire someone in uh, to to work for you, pay them by the hour. So why can't you do them? Ask them to do senseless work because she looks like she's insane people are going to see her filling it out coming and filling it up pouring, pouring it out in the garbage everybody's going to say about her i think she went crazy this is very embarrassing for her and therefore it's not within his right to do that he has to pay her ketubah Similarly, next case, it has to do with her reputation. Man says, uh, makes a vow that his wife is not allowed to borrow or lend to others utensils, things that people usually would borrow from each other, like a sifter, a sieve, a meal, an oven, I guess like a toaster oven, small one. And, and if he does that he has to divorce her and give her, give her a ketuvah because he's causing her to have a bad, bad reputation among the neighbors, right? Look, you know, I went and asked her for a, 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 a mill and she said no. Ah, she's not very nice. Or, or even her asking from others. That's one way that people show that they're friendly toward each other is by asking. Uh, to borrow something, it means, oh, look, sir, we're on such good terms, you feel close enough to me to ask me for something, that also increases friendship and neighborliness. So a man does not have a right to make his wife uh, so secluded that then everybody will say she's not friendly. It says the very same thing that Rav Kahana just said, uh, that a man who makes, his, uh, a, a, makes a vow forbidding his wife from lending out or borrowing various uh, kitchen utensils, he has to give her ketubah. Because it makes her have a bad reputation that she's stingy, she's unfriendly. And the same thing the other way around. If she makes a vow, and the wife says, I'm not going to borrow a land, a, sif, a sifter, a sieve, a mill, or an oven. Um, uh, or, and this is an additional item, she refuses to sew nice garments for her children. Because in that case, she's not going to be lending anything out. And then they will uh, cause a re- bad reputation for both of them. People will think that, oh, must be he told her not to uh, lend anything out or not to borrow anything. Uh, also, if he, she doesn't make these nice garments, people will say, oh, I guess he's too stingy and he won't even buy the uh, proper materials to make, make nice clothing for his children. So his reputation will be affected by her vow, uh, just like um, her reputation will be affected by his vow. Either way, these are grounds for divorce. Okay, so the previous Mishnah was all things that he is not allowed to do if he vows. That's grounds for divorce. And now, uh, things that are her responsibility, and if she does not do them, they're grounds for divorce without a ketubah.
woman does these things, she gets divorced and she has no right to collect her ketubah. A woman who violates the law of Moshe, that's talking about Doraita laws, and Yehudit means Jewish law, uh, customs, practices that developed that are on a Dirabanan level. What are examples of uh, Torah laws? She goes and takes produce that uh, was is tebel, that they didn't take a tenth from it, and she feeds it to him. This would be true of any non-kosher food that the uh, wife feeds the husband without telling him. Or she's a nida and she doesn't tell him that she is she that she is tameh, and they have relations together. She is causing him to sin. Or she bakes bread and she does not remove the chala portion of the bread that goes to a kohen. That's uh, forbidden food, forbidden to eat. Or she makes vows and she doesn't fulfill her vows. That's all these are deoraita prohibitions and that affect him also. Uh, so you see, it's not just any Torah law. If she violates some law that has nothing to do with him, it's not good, but that's not itself grounds for divorce. But these things are all things that are, are all items that directly affect their relationship. And what are the Jewish practices? If she goes out in public with her hair uncovered or disheveled, or she spins wool in public, we'll see what's wrong with that. Medaberet Aim call Adam or she's flirtatious, speaks with everybody. Also, if she curses his parents in front of him, she curses her in-laws in front of her husband. Also, someone who is too loud, a, woman, a loud woman. How loud is too loud when she's speaking in her house, but the neighbors can all hear that's too loud. It's a violation of their privacy. Okay, Gemara will explain each in turn. If he feeds her, she feeds him uh, 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 produce that is not tithed, how could there be such a case? If he knows it's not tithed, then the man will go and take the take ma'asir from it. And if he doesn't know, then when 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 is he going to find out? Presumably, she's not going to tell him. So then, when would he find out that she, in fact, gave him non-kosher food? That then he would go uh, to court and give her a, a get without a ketuva. So the case is simple. Could be a case where she, uh, he comes home. Hey, did you take my set here? He says, oh yeah. The, I, the, this Kohen, he, he came and he separated the Maaser. Sometimes they would do that instead of a person himself separating it. He'd tell the Kohen, listen, come and separate it and you can take your part from whatever you separate. And so then the husband uh, eats it, and eventually he goes to that kohen, and he find the kohen says, "I don't know what you're talking about. I never came over. I never took uh, maaser from the produce uh, on beh- on behalf of your wife." And so now he knows that his wife was lying and was feeding him this non-kosher produce. Or if she has relations with him while she's nida. Now what's the case? If he knows that his wife is nida, so he should stay he should stay away from her and they won't sin. 
And if he doesn't know that she is Nida, so then he has a right to rely on her that she is pure. Because the law is, if a woman says, I am, uh, I, I am not Nida, I'm, I'm permitted, then he is allowed, the husband is allowed to rely on her. He doesn't have to go and ask for proof, right? Let me see, show me a uh, calendar, show me the proof. Shemuel said, how do you know that a woman is allowed to count on her own? She doesn't have to have someone come and check every day uh, and, and count with her. Because it says she counts, she decides uh, um, when she be starts, begins the nida, and she can count, and she is reliable to tell her husband that she is permitted. Uh, we learn from here that we rely on one witness when it comes to saying whether uh, something is kosher or not kosher. If even one person says this is kosher, like if anytime you go to a house and the person uh, offers you food, you don't need a mashkiach in the house, you don't need two witnesses, you don't need to go in and check all the ingredients, but uh, rather one person. And so here, the woman herself is, the wife herself is uh, reliable. And so therefore, he would have no reason to suspect that she is lying so where would we have a case where that the, the woman would be tricking him and he would be able to find out it could be a case where the wife tells uh, the husband listen I did see you know some uh, uh, I had a check cloth and I went to the sage and I showed it to him and he said it's tahard it's not blood it's okay you're allowed to be with your husband Later on, the husband sees that sage and says, Oh, I heard my wife came to you and asked you about a, a, a check. And he said, No, I don't know what you're talking about. Or even worse, he says, Yes, yeah, she came by. I said it was prohibited. And she totally lied. So that would be a case. Or another possibility. If a woman is known by her neighbors uh, to be in Nida, in other words, neighbors, they keep track, they know they, uh, what, what everybody uh, around them is uh, going through. And uh, so if the neighbors know, know that she's Nida, then they can take the husband and give him lashes for violating Nida. So this would be a case where um, the neighbors uh, knew that she was Nida, and uh, then he finds out about it. So that, and she, the wife, tricked him. So that would be grounds for divorce without a ketubah. Or if she served him bread without taking challah. Same question. If he knows that they didn't take, she didn't take challah, so he should um, then not eat it. Um, uh, or if he doesn't know, then how would he find out? She says, this guy, the professional kneader, I guess kneading was a hard job, so they sometimes take their dough to a kneader, and he says, that guy, he already took challah while he was kneading it. And the husband goes and asked that kneader, the baker, and he says, "No, no, I, I never took the, I never took challah." Then he knows she's lying. Venodedet vena mekayemet, woman who makes vows and does not fulfill the vows. 
Why is that a problem? Damar mor. Bavon edarim banim metim. Shenemar al titenet picha lachati et besarecha. Because of the sin of vows, when people take vows and don't fulfill them, children die on the on account of that. As the pasuk says, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Uh, so uh, flesh could be one's own body, or it could refer to children. And actually, the the rest of the pasuk says, chibel et maase yadecha and destroy what you have. Have created. So what is that referring to? This is a good example where they don't quote the entire Pasuk, but they expect you to know the rest of it. And so what is uh, what is what does it mean? That which a person creates, that's his sons and daughters. When Yirmiya says, I in vain I smote I smote your children, so Lashav doesn't they take not to mean in vain, but rather Rather, vows that are said in vain, false vows that one does not fulfill. Um, uh, uh, Hashem punishes children because of that. So these are very serious and therefore, obviously, affect the family life if th- those are going to be the consequences. Tanya, Rabbi Meir said that anyone who knows that his wife made, va- made a vow and didn't fulfill it, he should make, make the vow again. Now, this is strange. What do you mean? If he makes it, doubles down on the vow, then how does that help her? That only makes it worse for her. Rather, he should bring up the topic again, whatever was bothering her. Maybe there was some uh, you know, neighbor that was bothering and she said, I vow I'm never going to talk to that person. So he should bring it up again so that she'll repeat the vow. And that way, when, since he knows about it and it's said in his presence, he will be able to nullify it. However, that was Bimeir's advice. But the other sages said, no, that's not good advice because you can't live in a basket with a snake. Um, meaning, if, you're, if there's a snake around, okay, you can be very vigilant and if you know what you're doing, you can control it and get away from the snake out of a dangerous situation. But you can't live in that, in that uh, basket permanently. It's not a good permanent solution. Same thing here. You know, uh, the husband has a right to nullify his wife's vows. And this is like an emergency situation. This comes up. But if your wife is making these vows and not fulfilling them, then, and that's, that's uh, her way, then that is already grounds for divorce. And you can't rely on the fact that you're always going to know, you're always going to be there, you're always going to hear about it, you're always going to be available to nullify it on that same day. And therefore, uh, they reject the Bimeir's advice. Tanya, Hayyada Biyuda Omer, Kol the Biudah had similar advice to the Bimeir. Anyone who knows that his wife does not separate Chala, he should go and separate Chala afterwards, right? So I know she doesn't do it. I'll, I'll do it all the time. In other words, therefore, he doesn't uh, need to divorce her. He'll just uh, go and do it afterwards. The other rabbi said the same thing. You can't live with a snake in a basket, right? Um, this is something that happens often. She's probably making bread about it just about every day. And so now you have to be so uh, vigilant every day to go and make sure that you go and, and do that work after to take the challah. It's going to be a day that you forget because you know, people usually assume that the food in their home is kosher. All right. So man de matnea la aha kol shiken ahach. 
regarding these two laws that are very similar to each other. So would each agree with the other? So we say not necessarily. The one who said the law regarding the halah, that a person can live with his wife even though she doesn't take challah, and he'll be careful every day to go and take challah, he would say all the more so it's permitted for him to stay with his wife who makes vows because you make bread every day, but people don't always make vows, so therefore it's uh, more easily um, uh, uh, possible to live with a woman who sometimes makes vows and then help make sure to nullify them. But the one who said that regarding vows they can stay together, but that would be much harder to live with a person who never takes challah. Sometimes it's going to happen that he will eat challah, eat bread that the challah was not taken. And so in that case, the uh, Bimeir's uh, Rabbi Yehuda would say that he can he cannot Rabbi Meir would not necessarily agree with Rabbi Yehuda, even though Rabbi Yehuda would would agree with Rabbi Meir. Okay, Mishnah said someone who violates uh, Jewish practice, for example, if he goes out, if she goes out with her hair. Uh, uncovered. Hold on, how come you're calling this just Jewish practice at uh, Drabanan? Uh, it seems like this should be a Deoraita because we can learn it from the law of Sota as part of the Sota ritual, which is talking about a married woman. Uh, when she comes to the Petamikdash, the Kohen will undo her hair, uh, which either means, you know, unbraid, dishevel, or uncover her hair. So we can learn from that that beforehand her hair is covered and so we can infer that married woman if we understand para is uncover that would mean that married women have to cover their hair and that's a deoraita law not only a dat yehudit Bishmael learned from this very pasuk that this is a Torah warning against Jewish women that they should not go with their hair uncovered so we answer, You're right. On the Torah level, a woman does have to have some covering of her hair, but on Doraita level, even a basket would be sufficient. Right? Women would often walk uh, with baskets on their head, heads to carry things. So a basket uh, like this, or it could be a bigger basket, but the point is it has a smaller bottom, and it's not covering her entire head, not all of her hair. On Doraita level, that's sufficient. Uh, but the Jewish practice comes along and and says that she has to cover her hair fully with a kerchief or something. Now Rabbi Yochanan comes and says a law that seems to go against what we just said. And he says a basket, if you wear a basket, there's no problem of having an uncovered head. A basket is sufficient. Um, it sounds like sufficient for everything, for even that Yehudit. Rabbi Zera was analyzing this. Where are you talking about? If she's walking out in the public, that Yehuditi, then uh, this is required to, um, this is a violation of that Yehudit, only wearing a basket is not sufficient. So it can't be talking about in public. And if you're saying that it's talking about in her private courtyard, and that means she has to wear a some kind of covering, a basket, even in private. Well, then you left no possibility for a daughter of Israel to live with her husband, with her husband, because if you're going to require a woman to cover her hair 
even if it's with just a basic covering of a basket. Even in private, even when she's with her husband, what, she's going to have to wear a basket on her head to sleep, to shower, every time she's home? It basically makes life impossible. So where exactly would a basket be sufficient, be necessary but sufficient? It's too much in the home, it's too little out in the marketplace. So we explained it, or Rav Kana explained it, that we're talking about going from one private courtyard to another private courtyard through an alleyway. It's not quite public. There's not many, many people there, but sometimes there are a few, a few people that are walking in this alleyway between private courtyards. So in that case, the in-between head covering is sufficient. All right, so that's a very important sugyat regarding uh, women covering their hair, and it's analyzed by Rishonim, Achronim, many different interpretations. For example, Rambam, who says, no, actually, a woman has to cover even her face like a full burqa, um, depending on the time and place. So a lot more to discuss there for another time. Vetova Bashuk, a woman is not allowed, it would, she would violate that Yudit if she spins threads in the marketplace. So what's wrong with spinning? She, uh, she, that's one of her requirements. She has to spin thread. So why is it bad if she's doing it in the marketplace? So it means that she's not just spinning wool, she's also doing it in a way to reveal her arms and uh, therefore she's doing it in a, a seductive way. Alternatively, she spins with a red thread in front of her face. Uh, she has a she allows a, thread, a red thread to fall down on her, and that again is suggestive that uh, she is being loose. Uh, and Rashi's interpretation here that fits not as well with the words uh, says that uh, talking about uh, that she spins down on her lap uh, so that she brings attention between her legs. And the next item on the Mishnah's list is that she speaks with everybody. Specifically that she flirts with young men. And the story that says, one time he was walking after, uh, behind Rav Ukva, who was uh, more senior than him, and uh, I saw that there was this Arab woman sitting there, and she was uh, uh, spinning uh, wool, and she did this thing with the red thread. And then, once she saw us walking, she took the spindle off the thread and threw it down, making believe that she dropped it by mistake, but she really did it on purpose. And she told me, I guess she, she didn't know he was a great rabbi, uh, but he, was, uh, he looked like a handsome young man. And she said, hey, young man, can you help me uh, pick that up? It's like, you know, when the girl drops her books uh, you know, on purpose so that the boy will come and pick it up for her. So she's flirting. And uh, when Rav Ukva saw that, 
he said something. Uh, now, my Amar Ba, what did he say? That what exactly what he said is subject to a machloket. Ravina Amar Tova Bashuk. One, according to one opinion, Ravukva says this is exactly the example of someone spinning in the marketplace. This would be a support for the opinion above that said the problem with spinning in the marketplace is that she is um, letting this red thread hang down in a suggestive way. And that's, that's why he pointed to that because this Arab woman did that. Whereas other sages say that Rav Bukva said this is an example of her being flirtatious because this woman this woman did two things she both was spinning and she dropped the spindle and then was talking to strike up a conversation with this young man who happened to be a rabbi. Um, uh, that it was, he said this is an example of flirting. Uh, and so this would be a support to uh, the one who says that it has to do more with, uh, with flirting. Uh, so we see this, this actually is an example of both. She, this, this Arab did, a woman did both of them. Okay. Um, Abba Shaul Omer. Uh, now she wouldn't, she, she's an Arab, she's an Muslim Jewish woman, so it's not like she was get, she was going to get divorced with a kitubah or without a kitubah. They're just bringing an example of, right, look, to see, you do have to be careful with such a behavior. A woman who curses her in-laws to her husband's face. Um, that violates Jewish practice. Shemuel says not only that, but also someone who curses um, someone's grandchildren in front of uh, in front of the grand the grandparents, right? Someone who, who curses her husband's children, her, someone who curses her husband's parents in front of her husband's children. Uh, so that he, she tells the children about how terrible their grandparents are. And uh, a way to remember this is uh, that when Yaakov is giving a blessing to Ephraim and Menashe and elevating them and to give them a, give Yosef a double portion, so that Ephraim and Menashe, his grandchildren, are going to get the same share of inheritance as Reuben and Shimon. What you see from here is that grandchildren are treated like children. And just like children don't want to hear negative things about their parents, so too grandchildren will get offended by hearing things about their grandparents. Araba gives an example. If a woman says, I hope that a lion devours your grandfather, she says that to right, her, her uh, stepson or her son, her husband's son, either way. This is an example of improper behavior worthy of divorce. Rabbi Tarfon Omer, Afa Kolanit, Rabbi Tarfon says, also a loud woman. My Kolanit, Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shemuel, Mishmashmat Kola Al Isket Tashmish. And not just that she happens to speak loudly, but specifically regarding intimate matters of uh, relations with her husband. She fights about it, talks about it in a loud way. That's inappropriate. A baraita, a different version of this says that when she engages in intercourse, intercourse in one uh, courtyard, uh, one can hear it from another courtyard. From the continuation, it's talking about where she is, is painful for her and she's screaming because of it. So we ask, So this obviously means there's something wrong. She has some kind of blemish that she is in such pain. If that's the case, then this doesn't belong in this Mishnah, but rather in an upcoming Mishnah, which talks about a woman who has a blemish uh, and whether that is grounds for divorce or not. 
so if she has so if she feels such pain, that's a blemish, and we should talk about it later. Rather, it must be the first uh, explanation of Shemuel that is talking about she speaks loudly about private matters. All right, and let's Mishnah for this. Daf hamekadesh et aisha menach en aleha nedarim venimsu aleha nedarim en amekodeshet. A person does kiddushin says, right, I did mekodeshet. Here's this ring on condition that you have no vows. I don't want to marry someone that has uh, previous vows that she said she's, uh, you know, not going to smoke, not going to talk to my parents, not whatever it is. I don't want to know. I don't. I don't want anything like that. And if 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 it turns out later on that she did make, she did have a vow at the time of the kiddushin, then retroactively the kiddushin is null and void because it's made on condition. However, if he did not make such a condition, but instead this is a second case, you can read it as a continuation, but simpler to read it as a a, a second case. Um, if he just married her and didn't make any conditions, and then afterwards found out that she already had certain vows upon her, so this is grounds for divorce without a ketubah. Although it will only work from now on, they were married and now she is divorced. It can't retroactively annul it because it's not a condition. So if you do make the Kiddushin on condition, retroactively annuls it, it's as if they were never married. She could marry a Kohen. Um, but if not, if it's still grounds for divorce. It still means that he doesn't want that. You can read as a continuation also. If he had made a condition at the time of Kiddushin, but then gets married without repeating the condition, it shows that he's okay going forward with the marriage and doesn't want it to be retroactively annulled. But it still does mean that he's particular about her not having vows. And so if she turns out she had a vow, then he can divorce her without a ketubah. Okay, uh, contrast that with Aminat, She'en ba mumin, V'nimsu ba mumin, En amikodeshet. Similarly, if he makes a uh, a condition of the Kiddushin, says, uh, you will be mikodeshet to me, on condition that you have no blemishes. Right, uh, some kind, whatever, we're going to talk about what blemishes they are. Um, uh, and turns out that she does have a blemish, so retroactively, the Kiddushin was never valid. They're not married, they go their separate ways. On the other hand, if he, they get married without any condition, and turns out that she does have a blemish, well, if that's a serious enough blemish, then it will be grounds for divorce without a ketuvah. Uh, she should have mentioned it before, although it's not going to undo it retroactively because he didn't make a condition on the marriage. He married her without condition, so you can't undo it. What are what are uh, disqualifications? It's the same disqualifications for a Kohen. If a Kohen has such a blemish, he cannot serve, uh, discoloration, limbs, uh, things like that. Uh, then um, uh, that would also be no good. That, that would also be grounds for divorce. In a marriage. Okay. Now we ask, this Mishnah right here is repeated in Masechet Kiddushin. Why do we need it in both places? The answer is, uh, because, because this case actually involves 
two different things. Number one is talking about Kiddushin. If you do a Kiddushin on condition. So there, that has to do with Kiddushin. Uh, so that's why it needs to be there. But it also talks about if you just marry someone without any conditions. So this is uh, in, implied in the in the payment of the Ketuvah is he only has to pay Ketuvah uh, if she fulfills all of her, her requirements. And uh, one of them is that she doesn't have, have a blemish or she doesn't make vows. If she does, then that is a, a violation of her side of the Ketubah res- responsibilities. So that's why we need it in Ketubot. So uh, we, ne- we need it in Ketubot because it talks about Ketubot. So that's why it's here. Um, and so we talk about Kiddushin, we bring it in because we're pro- talking about both cases, they go together, and they're in Kiddushin, even though we're primarily ent- interested in Kiddushin, but we bring in the Ketubot, by the way, uh, because we do want to contrast the case where in Kiddushin it's a condition that's retroactively annulled regarding the violation of Ketubah responsibilities, it's only from that point on. Uh, so Rabbi Yochanan says there's a limit, uh, uh, he makes a limitation on this Baraita, uh, on the Mishnah, and says what kind of vows are we talking about in the Mishnah? Not any type of vow, but only something that specifically has to do with their marriage, like she says I'm not going to eat meat, I'm not going to drink wine, I'm not going to wear colored clothing. And so this will impinge on his mar- his marriage also. He she he wants to uh, see her in nice colored clothing. He wants to have go out and have a nice meal of meat and wine together. And so these are more serious nedarim that that relate to the marriage. Tanya nemehachi be'elu nedarim amru. What vows are we talking about? Demi sheyesh behen inui nefesh elotocha basa v'shotish teyain v'shotit kashet bebigdes sib onin. So it's only talking nedarim that have uh, that cause suffering. A man doesn't want to be married to a wife that takes upon herself these uh, these uh, acts of suffering, uh, not eating meat, not drinking wine, and not. Uh, wearing colored clothing. Okay, now regarding this to this paraita and statement of Rabbi Yochanan, was analyzing this. On which clause in the Mishnah was this talking about? Is it talking about the resha when he makes a conditional kiddushin? As if you have vows, uh, then this marriage is no good. Well, in that case, he shows that he cares about any vows. He doesn't want a woman that makes vows. That's he can you can make a vow about anything. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. And so if he says since he said that, it shows that he does not want any vows at all. So it should not be limited to only these these three types of vows. Ela asifa rather must be talking about where they he does not um, say anything. He just marries her, sitam, without any condition. And even though, even so, if it turns out that she did make a vow, he can he can give her a divorce without a ketubah. There, it makes sense to say it's not every every uh, a vow. If she, you know, just makes a small little vow, that shouldn't be grounds for divorce. But in that case, it should only be these uh, important ones that relate to him too. Uh, Rav Ashe actually, I could say, is talking about the first clause. And really, it's talking about the conditional marriage and things that a person 
people usually care about. So that's what he's talking about. So when he says, no, I didn't want you to, ma to um, make such a vow uh, that you're not going to eat meat. So that makes sense. That's what he had in mind when he said the condition. But regarding things that people usually don't care about, if she just um, makes a vow that she's going to go for a walk today, and people don't 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 are not particular about that. So then this man, even though he made a condition, doesn't care if she makes a little vow like that. When he has when he makes such a condition, what he has in mind is uh, these more serious vows. Baruch Adonai Amen